Welcome to Integrated Infrastructure, the podcast that brings you news and views from industry leaders involved in the development, design, construction and management of the many built forms that make up Australia's integrated infrastructure. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as traditional custodians of the land on which we recorded this podcast. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and future and recognise the continuing connection and contribution to this land. I'd like to extend my respect to any Aboriginal people who are listening to this podcast. My guest today is Rob Stokes, Minister for Infrastructure, Cities and Active Transport in the New South Wales Government. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including Rob's background in law, his move into politics and how he sees infrastructure impacting society, along with some of the challenges and opportunities he and his team have encountered since coming into office in 2011. If you have any questions or want to dive deeper into any of today's topics, please reach out. Right, let's get into it. Rob, welcome to the Integrated Infrastructure Podcast. Um, thanks, thanks for having me. Well, absolute pleasure. I know how busy you are. Um, but, um, as always, we always ask our guests to introduce themselves. So over to you. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm Rob. I'm the uh, local member for Pittwater, uh, but more relevantly for today, I'm the Minister for Infrastructure, Minister for Cities and Minister for Active Transport. Uh, and uh, I've had the opportunity to be in government for, uh, well, ever since we got into government in 2011, uh, and I've been a government minister for uh, it'll be nine years by the election, so had the opportunity to do a, a vast range of portfolios uh, and learn a great deal about how to make effective decisions to make people's lives better. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I'd love to um, learn a bit about you and dig into your background uh, to some degree. I've obviously done a bit of research and Googled you and looked on Wikipedia and what have you. And, don't do that. Um, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> I did. Um, no, but you, you, you actually have a, a background in law, um, starting off as a solicitor um, before coming into, into Parliament, I think. And um really interested to know how you went from that to becoming you know a um, a reformer regenerator of social transport um uh, infrastructure and, and urban spaces and really want to know where that passion comes from well partly because i hated being a solicitor and the, i mean the, 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 i love the law and it's interesting you know often politicians are derided if they've been come from a legal background but when you actually Pair it back. Uh, politics is the business of making laws, so it's not a necessarily a bad idea to know how laws are made if you're going to make them. Uh, and of course, if you've got an interest in law reform, uh, being a solicitor is uh, is really not a great place to practice law reform because you're a practitioner of what the law is rather than challenging why it is what it is. And that's what really attracted me to politics because I was interested in, in using legal skills to transform people's lives for, for the better, to make sure that we could live in a more just society. I believe justice in society is really important mm -hmm. because as a, as a base, our society is based on a contract uh, that people uh, – follow the laws, obey the police, you know, uh, follow social norms because they see the advantage in coming together as a community. Mm -hmm. If that breaks apart, uh, then there's no wonder when you get to countries where there's disorder or revolution or violence or resentment uh, because the base of the social contract's been lost. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to keep fighting and thriving for a just society. Mm. And, and um, what was your law practice? What, what do you specialise in? Uh, environmental planning law. So yeah, that okay. was my my focus. And uh, and that, again, was was great training because a lot of the disputes we face in New South Wales are based on land use and the mm. use of land and resources. Those disputes aren't going to go away uh, as global population continues to expand. We've expanded by another billion people just in the time this government's been in office. Mm. Uh, so uh, those fights over land and resources are going to be, become more intense. Mm. And so focusing on how to solve those 
uh, those disputes is going to be a crucial skill. Yeah. And, and I, I know we're talking about infrastructure, but you, you also have a passion for education as well, don't you? A, yeah, but the, 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 the two things, uh, so I was education minister for two and a half years mm. uh, and uh, and been a you know, teacher mainly of law again in the past, uh, environmental law, uh, but um, the, the passion is actually linked to infrastructure mm. because uh, writ large, ed- education is an infrastructure. It is part of the, the the scaffolding that can help people to make a contribution to society. Mm. Infrastructure is all about enabling people to live as full citizens. Mm. So, infra- uh, education is a key part of that. Yeah, and and is the, the, the you know infrastructure planning urban is that something in the background or is that just something that you came into through through your career as a, as a solicitor? Uh, no, I was actually quite conscious about uh, choosing this. I mean, I always had a passion in urban planning and architecture and those sorts of things. Yeah. But when I reflected uh, toward the latter stages of of, uh, of law school, I thought, where, where, where are the disputes going to be? And mm. it was very clearly it was over land and resources. So mm. knowing about those things uh, and how to bring them together usefully, and that's what infrastructure does for us, it connects private uh, uh, private investment through public infrastructure, through, through public linkages, yeah. uh, that was going to be a key skill. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I came to Sydney in 2011 um, and um, a fantastic opportunity for me in Australia. And um, it was the same year that um, the coalition came to government in New South Wales. Um, I've seen the state and Sydney in particular change dramatically over that time, the physical you know, um, um, sense um, and, and, and also the social sense in terms of a lot of the social uh, infrastructure work that you guys have been doing. But um, what, what were the biggest challenges when you came into government in 2011? I, I think the biggest was the fact that we had inherited a government where no one had done terribly much for a long time. Uh, and so there had not been infrastructure provision, which meant that the public service had been de-skilled in their capacity to to deal with complex contracting and procurement mm-hmm. uh, arrangements and relationships. So that's why, for example, the light rail, uh, the procurement was a little bit of a shambles in retrospect. It was a great result, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it was a bit like, you know, the Bismarck's definition of, you know, governments like a sausage. You might like eating it, but you don't want to see how it's made. It was a little bit the same with with the early stages in in re-skilling the mm-hmm. public service in being able to contract with tier one contractors yeah. uh, and, and to get things done, uh, mm-hmm. to go through planning and procurement. And so some of those early infrastructure interventions were actually as much about learning how to do it again because government had forgotten. And, and how did you do that? Uh, well, it's, there's, there's no clean way to do that. You've got to, it's like starting an engine again. You've mm. got to, uh, you, you've got to check it out. You've got to rebore it and you've got to start it up and try it. Mm. And, uh, but the, the, the key learning from that is don't stop. Mm. Once you've developed the capacity to deliver infrastructure, sure, if you're confronting headwind, headwinds in terms of costs and so forth, you might pick different projects, mm. but don't stop building because mm. the moment you stop building, you, you, you lose capacity to know how to do it. Mm. There's a real breadth to the infrastructure that you, that this government has been involved in, in terms of transport, social, energy, all across the, the different areas that you could have um, been involved in. But um, how do you work when, if you're starting off with a, a poor procurement system and so, a civil service that's struggling to keep up with these things, how do you tackle something so broad? It's, um, it's so so you you do it in different. Uh, parts in different parts of the bureaucracy. So what we've done, obviously, transport and uh, former Premier and, and Transport Minister Gladys Berejiklian really kicked that off uh, in transport infrastructure. But then 
as we were able through things like our wages policy and asset recycling, were able to liberate more capital to build more things. Mm-hmm. We expanded the model to health infrastructure and uh, schools infrastructure mm-hmm. so that we had different um, uh, g- governance frameworks to be able to to run projects and deliver programs. So that's why you've got infrastructure in New South Wales, schools infrastructure, health infrastructure, and transport infrastructure Mm -hmm. that are all, if you like, sub-governance systems, all sitting under the rubric of the assurance processes set by Infrastructure New South Wales, which is nation leading. And in fact, I'm meeting with uh, the New Zealand opposition today. I met with the UK government a couple of weeks ago because they're keen to learn from us Mm -hmm. about our experience in terms of assurance processes and the governance processes that Infrastructure New South Wales has set up. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, my, my real learning is now that we've figured out how to do it, Keep doing it, mm-hmm. uh, and by all means, yeah. If if we don't have uh, access to capital in future, by all means, choose smaller projects, but don't stop doing things. Mm. That sort of answers some of my next question, which was really around um, the fact that we've seen four premiers since 2011, and um, obviously I'm from the UK, so I know what happens when you know governments change yes. quite you know, dramatically. Um, but they've changed, you know, they tend to change direction quite quickly, and all of a sudden, like today's plan is in in the bin, and you know, yesterday's plan is in the bin, and we've got a new agenda. But there's been a a, a, a fantastic consistency in the approach and drive and momentum around infrastructure in New South Wales, despite having four different premiers. Um, you've talked about maybe the background, the structural side of that. Is it a cultural thing that's meant that we've, you know, you've been able to achieve so much? We've just had a consistency of mission. Uh, mm. We've been a very missional government. We're not interested in transacting business. That's mm. not what we got here for. We want to transform the state. Mm. And that's been a shared ambition uh, from all of us. It's been infectious. It's what keeps us going uh, because governments are pretty it's you know there's a few people who get energized by politics itself i'm not one of those um but generally you go into politics i mean there are easier ways to you know make a contribution the the reason you do it is because you want to leave the world a better place than when you went in mm-hmm. um presumably although there are plenty of governments that seem co- quite comfortable just sitting there and not doing much mm-hmm. and it's easier not to do much it's easy to get elected by not doing anything mm-hmm. um but that's not what you're elected to do so there's a sort of uh, there's a paradox there that uh, the more effective you are as a government the more at risk you are of getting turfed out yeah. uh in one sense but uh we want to demonstrate by doing things that you know, to, to, to explain to the community why uh, they did the right thing by putting their trust in us. Uh, and so that while the, the leader may change, the mission continues. And um, there's a good reason why the leaders change as well. I mean, you know, there's obviously all sorts of the vicissitudes of office, but when you look at CEO level positions, what three to five years is about the standard these mm-hmm. days. Uh, and uh, that's been replicated in New South Wales. Uh, we've had Premiers who have roughly served th- three, three or so years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be the the standard. Uh, but when you look, as, as you mentioned, uh, right through their tenure, there's a consistency of purpose. And that was we set up the infrastructure building machine, the governance side of it, Infrastructure New South Wales, mm-hmm. and how we fund it through wages policy and, uh, and asset recycling. And that's what's paid for it all. Mm. I think what's been um, notable recently is that you talk about that, that mission is that I've noticed the, the work that's been done on the border to Victoria and the border to Queensland in terms of working with those governments in, in making sure infrastructure works across the borders as well. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear about what you've been doing recently in that space. Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting area because obviously the, the borders came under sharp uh, uh, focus during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and certainly 
with the Victorians, there's a very strong existing re- relationship between the Premier and the Victorian Premier, uh, and uh, so that's been developed over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So you were able to see a, a co-investment in a hospital down on the uh, um, the border region between Albury and Wodonga. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Queensland, uh, we've had less, uh, I suppose, um, con- direct connection across uh, government lines, mm-hmm. and um, we're a little bit anxious about some of the decisions they've been making in terms of dismantling their wages policy. We understand everyone's under inflation inflation pressure, mm-hmm. but um, as a result, we're worried about their capacity to fund their infrastructure commitments. So one key area that we could work really effectively on is on the proposed Gold Coast light rail. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it makes very little sense for that project if it's built not to proceed across the border into Tweed, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't need to go very far into Tweed before it connects the whole area together. So we're very keen to work with the Queenslanders, but we're not quite sure as to the status of the project mm-hmm. uh, because, again, they're going to face some c- capital constraints. And one of our frustrations is, um, I guess, working with the feds is um, we have there's a bit of a history of us getting penalised because we've run an effective and disciplined budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't tend to get as much money to support our infrastructure agenda as those who don't perform as well and don't exhibit the same sorts of responsibility. And that's a a little bit of our tussle with the Queenslanders. But certainly with Victoria, we've got a very, very strong relationship. Yeah, that's fantastic. Looking back over the the 11 years, we've mentioned light rail, but what have been the hardest reforms or the hardest um, initiatives um, in the infrastructure or urban space that you've, you've had to get up? Well, look, and and here I should you know, say that um, a, a lot of the heavy lifting here has been done by my colleagues, not by me. So I need to share that. But I've obviously been part of the journey. But I think um, some of the challenges have been in uh, the property acquisitions uh, because that's deeply personal for people who's who are having their homes purchased. Interestingly, because the system is quite generous, it hasn't the lived experiences hasn't been the people whose houses have been purchased. It's the people whose houses have not been purchased. That's where the real mm-hmm. challenge is, because they're obviously purchased at a premium. And people, you know, once you're far enough away from the uh, from the the infrastructure work itself, you're not as affected, but you still may have some peripheral impacts and you want to leave as well. So that's been a challenge. But our frustration there is many of these corridors had been earmarked and had been purchased uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, uh, but previous governments had sold them off. And so we needed to buy them back again in order to deliver infrastructure projects. The classic example would be WestConnex, where there was a reservation, uh, but it it was privatized by the government in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, right. In the education space, we as a business actually do a lot of work to sort of flow through from schools infrastructure. Um, but in the school space, what would you say your sort of the most challenging projects there? I would. I came in as uh, education minister in what uh, 2017, and I was a bit terrified because we had a really significant infrastructure backlog, mm. uh, and. Part of the challenge we also faced was we had capacity in schools in the areas where communities weren't growing and we didn't have capacity in schools in areas uh, um, that were growing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Plus, we had very lax enrolment policies, uh, which meant that parents were enrolling their children in schools that were further away from where they lived, um, often based on some mistaken belief that that would 
stand them in better stead to get into the local selective school or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But there are all these distortions in the provision of public education resources. And so that had to be sorted out. We had to sort out enrolment policies. Uh, we had to identify, uh, we had to change our algorithms based around where we thought people would live. There had been a very old-fashioned idea that people who live in units don't have children. Mm -hmm. So where there were areas of sort of two-bedroom units being developed, there weren't the schools to match the increase in population. Uh, and and also there was there hadn't been provision for sufficient infrastructure investment in uh, um, uh, in in addressing backlogs and uh, classic example of that was, remember that, well, you might not remember you were in, in Australia at the time, but there was the building education revolution mm. uh, that uh, the former Gillard government had done. Now, that built all sorts of infrastructure around the place. None of it was planned for, mm. and none of it had any provision for uh, for uh, maintenance. Mm. So we had to, all of these structures reached the, the age at which they needed to place the paint, the carpets and the drains all at the same time. And there'd been no provision for that when the federal government had made this investment. Mm -hmm. So we had to play catch up. So there are a lot of moving parts that we had to deal with. And that was part of the reason we set up schools infrastructure, because the first thing we recognised, we need a specialist unit to be able to identify the issues. We didn't even have, for example, a, a complete asset register mm -hmm. of what we owned, let alone its condition. Uh, and so we established real disciplines about managing backlog maintenance, uh, and we identified where we needed new schools and worked with the then treasurer, uh, Don Perrottet, yeah. to, to get the money we needed to do the biggest school build in New South Wales history. Um, and can I ask the same question, but in the urban space, where, where you think the sort of biggest challenges have been there? Uh, well, urban infrastructure, I guess, look, there are a couple. Of, it, We've focused on doing the big bits of kit, mm -hmm. so the metros, the motorways, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but equally important are the smaller linking bits of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And my personal passion, but something I feel is just as important, uh, and we need to talk about it more, is the green and soft infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's it's not, and that's come you know been been emphasised particularly during the pandemic as well when people have been working more from home, yeah. uh, which which is a practice that will continue. Uh, people obviously will come back to urban cores and they're already coming back, yeah. but we're, we're already seeing that workplace flexibility is going to be a feature of life going forward. Mm -hmm. So the amenity of local neighbourhoods and streets and the mm -hmm. capacity to get around them efficiently and effectively is really important as well. Mm -hmm. And when you look at when we're planning effectively new cities like the Western Parkland city around the Aerotropolis, uh, if we don't get that right, mm -hmm. if we don't ensure there's enough green spaces, parkland, water sensitive urban design, uh, enough tree canopy, mm -hmm. um, that that's going to be a pretty hostile environment in which to live. So we've got to get that right. And that's yeah. just as important in terms of infrastructure as talking about the, you know, hairy chested bits of kit like big airports and, mm -hmm. and, and big motorways, yeah. uh, but parklands and wetlands and uh, bike paths and pedestrian footways are just as important. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about active transport because, that, I mean, where did active transport come from? But it's, it's very prominent now, isn't it? And it's, you know, to have that in your title as a minister, it really shows what a priority it is. I'm really excited to be the first 
and only active transport minister in Australia. Mm. Uh, and that signals this government's ambition to ensure that we've got the best cycling and walking infrastructure in the nation. We know we're coming from a long way behind, uh, but that just redoubles our determination to get it right. Mm. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that, and a lot of it's linked to our health budget. Mm. Uh, the biggest our health budget's now uh, more than a quarter of the total budget, I think $33 billion a year we spend on health. And the biggest single proponent, proportion of our health budget is spent uh, treating non-communicable illness. And one of the biggest contributors to non-communicable illness is lack of exercise. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest contributors to lack of exercise is lack of access to exercise safely and uh, building in those disciplines around just getting out and about um, from a very young age. So providing the infrastructure to do these things is fundamental. And mm -hmm. I'd encourage, you know, listeners just, you know, look out when they're in the car driving around or look around uh, and you see that, uh, our, you know, as much as people can complain about our road infrastructure, uh, footpaths and bike paths are even, you know, more compromised and that's why we need to really focus on them. They're much cheaper. A business cost ratio will demonstrate that the benefits far outweigh the costs uh, more than really any other form of transport infrastructure in terms of walking and cycling infrastructure mm -hmm. and the impact it has on people's physical health and wellbeing, uh, their emotional health and wellbeing and also just the cost benefits. Mm -hmm. There are more, in Sydney alone, there are more than 2 million uh, vehicle trips every day of less than two kilometres. Mm -hmm. And so that's money in people's pockets and that's extra uh, congestion, particularly around transport hubs mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be there, provided we have decent cycling and walking infrastructure for people to get around. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's a really, really sensible investment and it'll make our cities more interesting and more livable. Uh, it means people will have better relationships because they'll be out and about more. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, uh, one of our big focuses here is on women as well, because the um, uh, yeah, our ad advice demonstrates that a lot of times uh, women don't feel safe uh, and not just women, but uh, other people as well don't feel safe uh, in um, the existing urban landscape. So we need to think much more uh, uh, reflectively and consciously about urban design mm. of the streetscape at a street level and not just, you know, the roads getting you from A to B, but mm. the, the, the space in between is just as important. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's a really interesting point. And um, again, kind of leads into my into my next question, which is really about um, where are the opportunities going forward? What happens next? Um, we've got an election in um, coming up and um, there's obviously um, uh, presumably some plans that um, are in front of us, but, um, you know, without, you know, giving anything away that you might want to be holding back. What, you know, where, where are the opportunities? Well, the great thing for your listeners is they're going to have a very clear choice. Mm -hmm. We are unashamedly a big target. Mm -hmm. uh, Don Perrottet is a big thinker. He's a visionary. Uh, he's got big plans. And uh, my job is to support him in those big plans. And I encourage him to think big. Mm -hmm. uh, I started this uh, this podcast by saying we're a transformational government. We're not interested in transacting business as usual because the world doesn't stand still. And if we stand still, we'll get left behind. Mm -hmm. Whereas Labor have made it very clear uh, that they're not going to have big plans. They've been actually quite, you know, I'm not uh, trying to uh, admonish them by saying this, that's just, there's going to be a clear contrast. Uh, mm. They uh, have said they're, they're not going to be doing, you know, big, big announcements about big uh, bits of infrastructure kit, uh, but we will be. Mm. Uh, and uh, we're unashamedly a big target. Uh, and that's why we're hanging on to the disciplines of asset recycling and wages restraint. Uh, 
because that's how we can pay for infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And remembering that, yes, of course, we want to reward our hardworking public service. Of course, we want to do that. But at the same time, we recognise that there's a balance between ensuring that we look after our public sector workforce, but we also ensure that we have a pipeline of jobs for the private sector as well. Mm -hmm. And the only way we can do that is through infrastructure spending and low taxation. And uh, and if we're going to keep our infrastructure pipeline going, but if we're going to lose wages policy and asset recycling, the only other way to do it is to either cut the pipeline or increase tax. And we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So we're going to stay the course. We're going to continue to run the machine that we've established, which is the one powered by asset recycling and wages policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Labor have said they won't. So uh, there, there's a very clear choice for your listeners. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a, a bit of an obsession around um, this idea that we should be building trains and things locally, and it's all very negative rather than thinking about the, the the bigger picture. I don't know. We all oh, this is something that. that really frustrates me. And yeah. I, I urge my colleagues not to accept Labor's premise on this. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's very you know um, comforting to talk about local manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we should manufacture locally um, when, when it makes sense to do so. But remember, Manufacturing these days is not what it looked like uh, in the 1950s and 60s when you know you had rows of people in in uh, in in blue boiler suits on production lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, I'm not sure that necessarily you know I, I want my neighbours and friends and family and children working in those sorts of conditions in any event. Uh, but manufacturing these days is largely automated, mm-hmm. so onshoring. Uh, manufacturing may not actually necessarily create huge numbers of blue collar jobs because that's not how factories work anymore. Um, now, there is strong um, uh, benefits in onshoring manufacturing where it brings significant numbers of jobs with it, but that's in, you know, in high value, high skill manufacturing, which is exactly what our economy should be doing. Uh, so there are certain things that we we can manufacture very very efficiently here and should expand. Uh, a good example would be uh, electric buses. Uh, our electric bus fleet, we're going to need thousands and thousands of buses and we know we can manufacture them on the mid-north coast in Western Sydney and we're already doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. But there are other bits of kit that uh, uh, it, it may not make terribly much sense to um, manufacture every single component onshore. Mm-hmm. And even the, mo- the world's most successful manufacturers still will import elements of manufacture from overseas. But the other thing we should be looking to do is export our ideas and our designs as well. And I know there's been a lot of contention about Sydney's ferry fleet, Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that's worth considering is they're designed by a local crew up near near my electric, actually up in the Northern Beaches, Incat Crowther, uh, who are um, designing ferries right around the world uh, and exporting those ideas right around the world. Burden, a big shipbuilder on the mid-north coast that's manufactured the vast bulk of our ferries, recently won a massive contract to uh, deliver um, uh, over a score of new vessels for the US Coast Guard. Mm. So we're not just uh, manufacturing onshore, but we're exporting as well. And that's I think we've got to have a broader perspective of manufacturing in a global economy. We don't want to go back to the 1950s. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, you're a very busy man, and I really do appreciate your time. And I'm, I'm extremely thankful of you making time to come and talk to me today and, and to my listeners. Um, you've recently announced your own retirement from um, from public life as an MP and as a, as a minister without um, sort of, you know, wanting to dig too much into your, uh, your soul. You know, um, what do you feel your legacy is or that you're going to be leaving behind you as a 
Well, well the first thing I, I, I want to say is um, I've, I've you know, been a minister now for almost nine years, so mm. that's that's a good amount of time. Mm. I think uh, any longer and you run the risk of becoming institutionalised and losing passion. I certainly haven't lost any passion, mm. but I, 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 I want to make sure that that charge can never be labelled at me and I think it's always better to leave before time than after time. Mm. Uh, and um, But I certainly won't be living public life. I'll be elect- leaving elected office, but I think every one of us as citizens has a duty to give back and I'll be looking for more opportunities to do just that. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, look, when I look back at the legacy this government uh, has created so far, uh, it's one of delivery where we've got a pipeline of infrastructure that has transformed this state. The job is only half done. I think when we look at the linkages between Western Sydney and Eastern Sydney, they're only half delivered. And that's the really tricky bit. I am worried that if we don't continue the work, uh, we will be left with a, a bifurcated city between the haves in the east and the have-nots in the west. We cannot allow that to happen because that, you know, where I started with the social contract, that could breach the social contract. We need to make sure uh, that th- there are opportunities not just for great places to live in Western Sydney but great places to work as well and a well-connected city region is the way to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've got to get beyond this idea of Sydney is just that cluster of tall buildings around the harbour. Uh, I love the idea uh, of the six cities mega region, this idea that we're an interconnected region of cities, much the same way as the the, the Ruhr in Germany or the Randstadt in the Netherlands or, or the Bay Area in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. There happen to be a whole bunch of cities that happen to be co-located next to each other. I think that's a much healthier way of thinking about the future of our urban region, but also then the way it interconnects with the amazing opportunities in regional New South Wales. I mean, mm-hmm. New South Wales what, 802,000 square kilometres of some of the most diverse and varied and beautiful landscapes on earth. We've got an incredible uh, template to to build off uh, and uh, and our work, uh, you know, has has only just begun. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Rob Stokes, Minister, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for your service. I very much appreciate your time. Can I be cheeky and ask you to finish with your uh, with your haiku from uh, last <laughs> week's val- valedictory speech? I'm not sure if I can remember my haiku, um, but uh, and, and I, I daren't do a limerick. Uh, I'll get myself in trouble. Um, but suffice to say, I think the poetry uh, that uh, speaks best for the government is the the uh, the the poetry of infrastructure that we've left across the city and the state. And, uh, and that's ultimately what I hope we're judged on. Thank you.